Hello, welcome to The Wire Podcast, a podcast that provides the best content about all things sports. To start today's episode, I want to talk about Shohei Otani's record-breaking contract with the Los Angeles Dodgers. After that, I want to talk about Jaden Daniels winning the 2023 Heisman Trophy, why I think he deserved it, and I want to talk about the issues that people had with him winning this award. After that, I want to break down the Philadelphia Eagles, who are having a really interesting season, and they've been struggling lately, and I want to talk about why they've been struggling the last couple of weeks. Adding on to that, I want to talk about Dak Prescott and his MVP case, and why I believe he should be the front runner for the MVP award. And then lastly, to close out the episode, I want to talk about LeBron James, who is having an incredible season, and I want to discuss why I believe he is having one of the best old man seasons the NBA has ever seen. That's what we have on tap for today's episode. I hope you're excited, I know I am, and let's go ahead and dive right in. Alright, let's get started by talking about Shohei Otani's record-breaking contract with the Los Angeles Dodgers. So this past weekend, Shohei Otani announced on Instagram that he would be signing with the Los Angeles Dodgers, ending his free agency decision, and this was the biggest storyline of the MLB offseason. Everyone was waiting to see where Shohei Otani would go, which team would he sign with, and there were a lot of teams that were trying to sign him. Obviously, the Angels were, they were trying to bring him back, of course, the San Diego Padres, the Los Angeles Dodgers, the New York Mets, all these teams were trying to get him. Of course, the the Toronto Blue Jays were also involved, but he ended up choosing to sign with the Los Angeles Dodgers, and the contract was crazy. He ended up signing a 10-year, $700 million contract with the Dodgers, and wow, that is a lot of money. That's a big deal. Huge contract. I was shocked to see that the contract was that big. I know a lot of people were discussing whether or not he would get $600 million. I remember over the last couple of months seeing a lot of podcast clips where even MLB players were asked whether or not they thought he would get $600 million. And the Dodgers said, hold my beer. We're going to give him way more than that. We're going to give him $700 million. Before I talk about whether or not I think he is worth this contract, I want to discuss how MLB reporters were, you know, covering his decision this weekend. Because there were a lot of false rumors going around on Saturday, and I want to discuss that whole situation. So, if you are not chronically online like I am, you may have missed what happened on Twitter on Saturday. On Saturday, there were a lot of rumors about Shohei Otani going to the Toronto Blue Jays. I saw some reports that it was happening, that he was going to the Blue Jays, and even though it hadn't been made official, people were reporting that it was basically a done deal. And at one point on Saturday, there was like a flight that was going from California to Toronto, and people were speculating that that was possibly Shohei uh, going to sign a contract with the Blue Jays. And it was just, things were crazy. And later on, like later on Saturday afternoon, Saturday night, there were some reporters saying, you know, no, Shohei Otani is not definitely going to the Blue Jays. No contract um, has been signed. No deal is official. 
And so you had some reporters reporting that he was going to the Blue Jays, and you had other reporters that were saying that no, he was not going to the Blue Jays. It was possible that he would, but no deal had been officially agreed to, and it was just really weird, and people were criticizing the MLB reporters, and rightfully so. It was just a really odd situation. It was bad journalism, and I say that as someone who recently just graduated with a, uh, with a degree in journalism, so I thought it was really funny, but also really bad. And it was a bad look for MLB reporters. Just a really odd situation all around. Um, something that we found out on Monday night is that Shohei Otani has decided to defer a large portion of the money that he would get paid each year until after the contract is complete. And what this means, and so basically he is deferring $68 million per year. What this means is that he will be making $2 million per year. For the next 10 years. And then, once the contract is complete, he will then be paid $68 million per year from, I believe, 2034 to 2043. This is something that is rare. You don't see a lot of players do this. It's a risky move on the player's part. Shohei is doing this because he wants the Dodgers to be competitive, and he doesn't want them to be in a weird situation where they can't spend money because they're paying him all this money. Um, that's why he's doing it. In my opinion, it's a bad deal on his part because um, apparently he's getting no interest on the, on the money that he's deferring. And so um, he's losing out on a lot of value here, potentially. Um, so it's not a great deal on his part, but it is a fantastic deal uh, for the Dodgers for the next 10 years. They're going to be super competitive. This allows them to be um, big spenders in free agency for the next decade. It's great for them. Um, but that was such a weird situation and such an interesting wrinkle with this contract. The, f the fact that Shohei Otani decided to defer a lot of money um, until after the contract is complete. It's interesting. Um, and a lot of people know, like if you're into sports, you know um, Bobby Manila, who used to play for the Mets. He did a similar thing with his contract. I believe that he signed this deal in, like the, in the 90s. But basically, the contract that he's known for is that he deferred it for like 20 years. I mean, it, it was crazy. Uh, maybe even longer than that. So he gets paid a million dollars every single year. Like annually, he gets paid a million dollars because he, he elected to defer his contract way down the line. Um, and so there's like one day a year that's called uh, Bobby Manilo Day. Um, just really interesting, really um, odd contract that's not very common. Um, and it's just... It's crazy to see Shohei Otani do something just like that with his contract. Now, is he worth it? That's the big question. Is he worth a contract this big? I think he is. Um, but when you talk about whether or not he's worth a contract this size, you have to consider a lot of factors. A, he's the best player on the planet. And he's one of the best hitters in the league. And he's one of the best pitchers in the league. And that is not normal. Like, you don't see a lot of players play on both, you don't see a lot of two-way players, you don't see a lot of guys who are hitters and pitchers, um, and guys who do do that are not, you know, one of the best pitchers and one of the best hitters in the league. No one is like Shohei Otani. Shohei Otani is one of the best players we've ever seen, and he is an anomaly, um, and because of that, he is going to get paid more money than everyone else. Now, you also have to consider that he is coming off of Tommy John surgery, so he will not be pitching next season. He will be hitting, but he will not be pitching. Um, so you are going to miss a year of his pitching, 
and there's no guarantee that he is going to be great as a pitcher moving forward, dealing with a Tommy John surgery. And I believe this is his second Tommy John surgery that he's had in his career, so he has had some some arm injuries, some elbow injuries before, so there's no telling what he looks like moving forward once his once he heals from this injury. But he's still a great player. Um, and on the, in terms of like his on the field performance, he's worth a lot of money. And that doesn't even take into account the fact that he is one of the more popular athletes on the planet. He is one of the more popular athletes in the world right now. He's very popular in Japan. He generates a lot of, a lot of revenue for whichever team he's on. That was the case for the Angels. I mean, even on days when he isn't playing, there are fans that are going to the stadium just to see Shohei Otani at all, even if he isn't playing. And that's crazy. So he, he makes a ton of money off the fields in terms of endorsements. He generates a lot of ticket revenue for uh, the team that he's playing for. He also generates a lot of revenue in general, not just from tickets, but, you know, from merchandise, things like that. Um, you know, whatever team he's on, they're going to be able to bring in a lot of money as a result of their TV deal, which is huge. That's a huge deal. Um, and like I said, he's popular in Japan, so he's bringing in money that way. Um, there was a YouTuber recently who made a money breaking down just how much money Shohei Otani is worth. Um, even, even taking into consideration the fact that he won't be pitching next year and the fact that he's coming off of Tommy John surgery and this YouTuber, which I'm forgetting their name off the top of my head. I apologize about that, but this YouTuber found that he is worth well above $600 million. And I think that this contract is worth it. I think it's going to be worth it for the Dodgers. I think the fact, um, that Otani just provide so much value off the field, as well as providing exponential value on the field as a result of just being a great baseball player. It makes this contract worth it. It'll be really interesting to see how it plays out with so much money being deferred until like 10 years down the line. That's weird. That's not normal. We're not used to seeing that, so it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. But yeah, this is a wild contract. Big deal. Um... As a, as a Braves fan, I hate to see Otani go to the Dodgers of all teams, but yeah, they're going to be a good team. Um, it'll be really interesting to see what else they do in free agency to fill out that team, to fill out their pitching staff, because they need to do that. Uh, they need to work on their pitching, but man, that lineup is nasty with Mookie Betts, Freddie Freeman, Shohei Otani, uh, Trey Turner, all the guys they have, Will Smith, like, that lineup is going to be great. If they can get some pitching, they shouldn't be the favorites to win the World Series. But, yeah, what a deal. What, what a what a conclusion to the uh, Shohei Otani free agency saga. It's crazy. It's been, it's been a lot of fun keeping up with that. But, yeah, those are my thoughts on the contract and whether or not I think Shohei Otani is worth $700 million. Now let's move on, talking about the Heisman Trophy and what and, why I believe Jaden Daniels is very much deserving of the Heisman Trophy. Okay, now let's talk about LSU quarterback Jaden Daniels winning the 2023 Heisman Trophy. The Heisman Trophy ceremony was this past Saturday, and it was officially announced that Daniels had won the award, and people were not happy at all. There were a lot of people that thought that Jaden Daniels was deserving of the award, but there were also a ton of people that thought that Michael Penix Jr. deserved it, and there were a lot of people on social media who were very upset that Jaden Daniels won. And the big issue that people have 
with Jaden Daniels winning the Heisman Trophy is mainly the fact that his team, LSU, was not amazing this year. They were good, but they were 9-3, and and they were not a playoff contender, while Washington, who Michael uh, Penix Jr. plays for, was undefeated, they were 13-0, won their conference championship, and now they are in the playoff. Um, another another criticism I heard, or another issue that people raised with Jaden Daniels winning the Heisman, is the fact that he didn't really have a signature Heisman moment. While Michael Penix did, and argu- arguably had multiple of them. You know, he performed really well against Oregon twice, um, once early in the season, and then again in the Pac-12 championship game. And he also played really well against USC, and former Heisman Trophy winner, Caleb Williams, and a lot of people pointed to those games and those performances as Michael Penix Jr.'s Heisman moments, and Jaden Daniels just didn't really have a signature Heisman moment like that, and those were the big issues that I saw people had with Jaden Daniels winning this award. Now, I understand why people care about those things, and I understand that people care about things like team records and Heisman moments when discussing whether or not an individual player deserves the Heisman Award. I understand that, and I get it, um, and I realize that people would care about that stuff. I don't care about that stuff, and here's why. Let's start out with team records and why I don't think that that should play a huge role in a player's Heisman candidacy. In regards to quarterback specifically, they control a lot about a team. They're the most valuable position in the sport, and so they have the biggest impact on a team. However, they can't control everything, and I think it's a little bit unfair to punish them for their team records, at least in some cases, especially with Jaden Daniels. And I'll talk about why I don't think it's fair to punish him for LSU's record. Um... Like, a quarterback cannot control everything about a team's record, in general. And that's my biggest issue when people using a team's record to punish a player um, in regards to their Heisman candidacy. Now let's talk about why I think, or why I have an issue with people using Heisman moments. Um, and this is something that something that people talk about a lot. I mean, I remember when Joe Burrow won the Heisman. Um, and people talked about his Heisman moment, which was, um, he actually had like a few, a few moments that you can consider his Heisman moment, like his performance against Alabama, um, his performance against Georgia, um, there were a lot of games that could have qualified as his Heisman moment, and that is something that people care a lot about. However, my issue with this is that Heisman moments are arbitrary, they're subjective, and there's no way to prove that a game or a moment is a Heisman moment. And when you even try to compare different players' Heisman moment, like, there's no way to prove that one player's Heisman moment is better than another's. And so those are my biggest issues with this Heisman moment um, argument against Jaden Daniels. I just think that Heisman moments are too arbitrary and too subjective to really be used as a serious argument against a player winning the Heisman. Um, When I look at a player's Heisman case, I personally care about performance. I care about a player's on-field performance. I want the best performing player in the league to win the Heisman Trophy. That's what I want. And that's why I wanted Jaden Daniels to win the Heisman Trophy. 
And I think that's how the Heisman Trophy should be awarded. I think it should be awarded to the best performing player. Um, I don't think that team records should play a big role. I will say that usually the best performing player is on a team that is pretty good, um, has a winning record. You're not going to see a Heisman caliber player on a team that's like five and seven. That's never going to happen usually. If that ever does happen, that will be the biggest outlier. Usually, a Heisman caliber player is a quarterback, and if a quarterback is playing that well, their team is usually winning football games, and although they aren't elite all the time, they're usually pretty good. Um, and so, um, that's like my biggest issue with, you know, team records and Heisman, Heisman moments being used uh, to criticize a player's performance. Um, so yeah, I want the best performing player to win the Heisman Trophy consistently. And in my opinion, Jaden Daniels was by far the best player this year. Um, you can look at numbers on the surface. He had the, he had the highest PFF grade among all quarterbacks. He was first in QBR, which is an EPA-based metric. That's basically EPA per play, adjusted for opponent strength, and put on a scale from 0 to 100, or I guess 0 to 99.9, .9, uh, where 50 is average. Um, his QBR was, was first, the best in the nation. He also ranked first among quarterbacks in total EPA, so basically like total value there. Um, and he was, his season was one of the best we've ever seen. His season this year ranked top three all time in QBR and total EPA for a single season. Um, and that data goes back to 2004. So it's not all time. It doesn't go back throughout the history of college football, but that's still a, a pretty long time. Um, and it's very, very impressive, the performance that Jane Daniels had this year. Um, now, I do think, I do want to point out, um, and I do want to say that I think that team performance can be used as part of a player's Heisman candidacy. Um, for quarterbacks specifically, I think you can look at the performance of their offense and use that in, in their favor. Um, and I, I have done that with Jaden Daniels. If you've seen me tweet about Jaden Daniels on Twitter, I've talked about how LSU's offense was the best in the league this year. And I think that LSU had the best offense in the league, and it wasn't close. They were number one in like every single metric. They were number one in EPA per play by a fairly big margin. They were also number one in points per game. A opponent adjusted points per game, which is points per game adjusted for opponent strength. They, their offense was insane. They were great. And their offense was better than Washington and Oregon. Um, and that's important because Washington and Oregon had both of their quarterbacks were in the Heisman race. That's Michael Penix Jr. and Bo Nix. And so I think the fact that, that Jaden Daniels was leading the best offense in the nation matters. And this matters. And the reason why I think that a team stat like points per game, EPA per play, stuff like that, the reason why I think that matters um, in terms of these quarterbacks' Heisman cases is because the quarterbacks have control over that. They can control that. They can't necessarily control their team's record, but they do have a big role and how a team's offense performs. And it's a fact that LSU had the best offense in the nation this year. Now I want to talk about LSU's record and why I think it is unfair to punish Jaden Daniels for LSU being 9-3 this year. The reason why LSU was 9-3 this year, despite having the best offense in the nation, is because their defense was really bad. And I don't just mean bad for LSU standards. No, I mean, their their defense sucked. Like it, I'm just going to be blunt here. 
their defense was really, really bad. Their defense was, I believe, outside the top 100 in EPA allowed per play, which is really bad. And their defense was awful. Um, and their defense w was legitimately one of the worst in the entire nation, which is crazy to think. That's crazy for LSU because they usually have a pretty good defense. But this year, their defense was really bad. Um, and I, earlier this week, I looked at LSU's three losses specifically to see if Jaden Daniels was the reason why they lost those games. And the fact is, he really wasn't. Um, and their three losses, I, and I, I'm referring to LSU, LSU's three losses were against Florida State, Ole Miss, and Alabama. And in those games, they gave up an average of about 47 points per game. And I think their lowest point total was... 21 points, 24 points against Florida State. Um, but they were, in these losses, they were giving up an average of about 47 points per game, which is obviously really bad. And uh, Jane Daniels performed fine in these games um, against Alabama and against Ole Miss. He was really good. He wasn't quite as good against Florida State, but he was still pretty good in that game. Um, and, and he was, he definitely didn't struggle. Um, and so, I think that LSU's defense is the main reason why LSU wasn't as good as they could have been this year. And I think, for this reason, it's unfair to punish Jaden Daniels um, for LSU only winning nine games and having three losses. Another thing I looked at earlier this week was some past Heisman winners. And whether or not that we, we've seen um, a Heisman winner like this recently... Um, and what I mean by that is, have we seen a Heisman winner who was the best performing player in the country, but their team wasn't great, had three or more losses, yet they still won because they were so good? And there weren't a lot of players like this, but one guy who had a similar case and was in a similar situation was Lamar Jackson in 2016. That year, Lamar won the Heisman despite the fact that Louisville finished the year 9-4. and four. That is including a postseason game. I think they went 9-3 and three during the regular season. Um, but despite, L or despite Louisville's record that year, he still won the Heisman. Now, I think that Jaden Daniels winning the Heisman is infinitely more defensible than Lamar Jackson winning the Heisman in 2016 because Jaden Daniels was much better. And in my opinion, Lamar Jackson was not the best player in 2016. Baker Mayfield was. Baker Mayfield had the best numbers. Um, o Oklahoma had a better offense than Louisville that year. Um, and Baker Mayfield was just by far the best performing quarterback that year. And I'm not really sure how he didn't win the Heisman in 2016, but whatever. This year, Jaden Daniels was by far the best performing quarterback. Um, he was a better quarterback than both Michael Penix Jr. and Bo Nix. And so I think him winning is defensible um, and way more defensible than Lamar Jackson winning in 2016. And let's just be honest, for a player, especially a, a, a quarterback, to win the Heisman Trophy with their team losing three games, they do have to be very good. They have to be outlier good. And Jaden Daniels was. I mean, earlier, I pointed out the fact that he just had one of the best seasons we've seen in recent memory. I mean, he had a historic season this year. And that's kind of what it takes to win the Heisman without being on an elite team. Um, and so I think because of that, 
uh, Jaden Daniels was deserving of the Heisman Trophy. I think it's good that he won. And in my opinion, I think the Heisman Trophy should go to the best performing player. Before I move on to the next topic, I do want to say that Jaden Daniels didn't just have good, you know, catch-all metrics like QBR, PFF grade. He was actually really good in a lot of different areas. He generated a lot of big-time throws. He was very accurate this season. He was really good as both a passer and rusher. Like, he was arguably the best passer in the league this year, and he was one of the more productive rushing quarterbacks in the country. Um, he was great under pressure. He was a great deep ball thrower. I mean, he was probably the best deep ball thrower in college football this year. So he was, not only did he have great catch-all metrics, but he was leading the best offense, and he was so great in all these different areas that are really important for our quarterback. And because of all that, I think he deserved to win the Heisman Trophy, um, and I think that it was not controversial that he won at all. I get why people think Michael Penix Jr. Uh, should have won, and I think any other year, he would have won. He had a great season, and I'm not trying to say that he didn't. He had a great season. Bo Nix had an awesome season. There were so many players that were great this year. But in my opinion, Gene Daniels was just too good to not win the Heisman Trophy, and I'm glad that he did. And that, those are my thoughts about the Heisman Trophy race this year, um, and why I think Gene Daniels definitely should have won the award, and why I am glad that he did. Now we can move on, talk about the Philadelphia Eagles, why they've been struggling recently, and also why I believe Dak Prescott should be the front runner for the MVP award. Alright, now we can talk about the Philadelphia Eagles, who are having a really interesting season. They've really struggled the last couple of weeks, and I want to break down why they've struggled, and why they aren't quite as good this year as they were a year ago. So this past weekend, the Eagles faced off against the Cowboys, a division rival, one of the best teams in the NFC, and they got destroyed, losing 33-13. And this is coming off another blowout loss they had against the 49ers last week. So they've had two blowout losses in a row against two of the better teams in their conference. Two championship contenders. Like, this is a bad look for the Eagles. They've been struggling. And honestly, they've been worse than their record all season long. And it has been really apparent in the last two weeks. Um, and when I say they've been worse than their record all season long, I mainly am referring to their point differential. I think that point differential is a great metric um, for measuring team strength. I think it's just, and, and it's not, it's very surface level. I think if you're just, if you wanted one metric to show somebody, hey, this team is overperforming or underperforming their record, here you go. Um, so I think it's good in that sense. And I think it's a very solid metric for measuring who the best and the worst teams in the league are. And mo for most of the season, the Eagles' point differential hasn't been great. And they've had, like, the best record in the league all season long, but they haven't had the best point differential. And so I think that they've been a worse team than their record for basically the entire season. And it's really shown up the last two weeks. And I want to break down why that is. Why are they not as good as they were last season? And I think that there are a few clear reasons why. So first off, we got to talk about their defense. Their defense has not been very good this year. Their defense has been bottom 10 in both EPA for play and success rate. And these metrics are very important. They're like the two most important metrics in all of football. They're super important. And the Eagles' defense has been bottom 10 in both of them. And that was not the case last year. Last year, 
They had one of the better defenses in the entire league, but their defense has definitely taken a huge step back this year. Um, mm. And a few, there were a few stats that I looked up um, to kind of see why are they struggling so much this year. And I went to a site called uh, FantasyPoints.com, and they have a lot of great data. And you can look at coverage data. So you can look and see how teams are performing um, when they play certain types of coverage. And so I looked to see how the Eagles were performing in, you know, single high coverage, you know, cover two, cover three, stuff like that. Um, and the stat that they had was fantasy points allowed for a dropback. Now, I know I am not talking about fantasy football, but fantasy points per dropback is a decent stat. Um, I think it's a good enough measure for how a team is performing in certain types of coverage. And the website I, I'm looking at um, is a fantasy football website. But I think this data is still useful. So right now, the Eagles are at the bottom of the league and fantasy points allowed for dropbacks when they play when they play single high or middle of the field close coverage. And that kind of coverage is cover one. That's man coverage with one high safety um, and cover three. And that's, you know, zone coverage with uh, three defenders, three defensive backs, all covering one third of the field. And so when they play that type of coverage, they're really struggling. Um, and that's not good. And because in those types of coverage, teams are able to generate big plays, especially against cover three. Um, and they run a lot of cover three. And they're also below average in man coverage, which is also not good. I mean, if you can't play man coverage, that puts you at a big disadvantage. Um, and you can also look at the results they've had in a few games. Um, in the last three games, they've allowed 30 plus points in all of those games. Um, and they've allowed 109 points total in those three games combined. Now, they are really good on offense. So although their defense is not great, they are really good on offense. And I, another thing I will add that I just thought of, um, their pass rush isn't quite as good as it was a year ago. Um, they're still, I think they're above average in pressure rate, uh, but they aren't getting to the quarterback as much as they did last season. Um, and I think a big reason why may be because they lost their defensive coordinator, Jonathan Cannon. They don't have him, and so maybe that's playing a role in that. But um, that's another issue they're having. Their pass defense isn't great. Um, their pass defense is actually one of the worst in the NFL. Um, so you look at how they're getting to the quarterback, uh, how they're performing against the pass, how they're performing in single high coverage. It's all not great. It's pretty bad. Um, and those are huge concerns when you look at a team's defense. Um, like I mentioned, they are playing pretty well offensively. Uh, so I'll talk about that. Um, they're top 10 in all of the key metrics like EPA for play, success rate, um, and that's great. Like, at least they're good on offense. And so they are a good team. I do want to point that out. The Eagles are a good team. Uh, I think they're a top 10 team, but they're not an elite team, in my opinion. And I think that's pretty clear. Uh, but what is keeping them um, towards the top of the league in terms of their record, uh, what makes them a top 10 team is their offense. Uh, Jalen Hurts has been pretty good this year. Not elite, but he has been very good. I don't think he's like an MVP candidate or anything, but um, he's been playing pretty well. Um, they've been really good. Their offense overall has performed um, at, at a pretty high level. Um, and one thing that I have in my in my notes, going back to their defense, is, there, is that their defense has some strong performances. They held the Chiefs and the Dolphins to 17 points, uh, which is funny, considering their defense has been so bad against the pass and so bad 
um, in these coverage shells that you would expect the Dolphins and the Chiefs to be able to take advantage of. But when they played those teams, their defense performed pretty well. Um, but overall, their defense has still been underwhelming. And when you look at their defense as a whole, it's been pretty bad. So, um, yeah, I think that's the reason why the Eagles are not as good as they were a year ago and why they've been struggling the last couple of weeks. It's because of their defense, which has uh, gone from being one of the best in the league to one of the worst in the league, especially against the pass, um, and especially when you look at um, how they're performing when they play one high safety uh, coverage shells and in-man coverage. Now I want to talk about Dak Prescott why I think he should be the front-runner for the MVP, and why I think he has just been unbelievably good this year. Um, his numbers are awesome. He's officially the MVP favorite now. At one point, Jalen Hurts was the MVP favorite, but in the last couple of weeks, Dak Prescott and Brock Purdy have become the two MVP favorites, and I think it's well-deserved. I think Dak Prescott is more than deserving of the MVP award. He's having a great season. Um, he ranks first in total EPA, he also ranks second in QBR behind Brock Purdy. Um, and then you look at PFF grade, he ranks first in that. Um, he ranks second in a very advanced stat called EPA per play plus completion percentage above expected composite. I know that was word salad. And you're probably like, what are you saying, Ryan? Like, can you talk in layman's terms? And I can. EPA per play plus CPOE composite is a stat that basically tries to predict what a quarterback's EPA per play will look like next season. That's what that stat is. It's really good. It's a great metric. Um, it's an efficiency metric. It looks at um, how, a team, or how a quarterback's EPA per play is combined with their completion percentage above expectation, which is also a good stat. It combines those two to kind of predict the quarterback's EPA per play in the future. Uh, and he ranks second in that stat behind Brock Purdy. Um, when you look at all these efficiency metrics, number one is usually Brock Purdy. Um, and if it's not Brock Purdy, it's Dak Prescott. And that's why these two guys are at the top of the MVP uh, betting odds. That's why they're the two favorites. Um, now, I think Dak Prescott has been better than Brock Purdy. And here's why. Um, he's been really great in a few key areas. He's been amazing as a deep ball thrower. He's been elite under pressure. Um, the last I checked, he was arguably the best quarterback in the league this year under pressure. He's been really good, um, went under pressure, which is great. He's also been fantastic on third and fourth downs. His EPA per play on these late downs is great, and I think it's actually first in the entire league. Um, and he's leading the best offense by EPA per play. The Cowboys offense has been uh, the best in this metric. They've been really good. Um, and I think for all these reasons, Dak Prescott should be the front runner for the MVP. And if he continues to play well against a really tough schedule that he has um, as the year comes to a close, I think he will win the MVP. And I think he will be well deserving of the MVP award. So, yeah, those are my thoughts on the on the caliber of season that Dak Prescott is having right now and why I believe um, he is deserving of being an MVP favorite and why I think he will eventually win the MVP award this year. All right, let's close out this episode by talking about LeBron James, who is having an incredible season. And honestly, he's taking down father time. Uh, I want to talk about the kind of season he, that he's having and why I think that he's having one of the best old man seasons the NBA has ever seen. And that's crazy. It's just 
Honestly, it's ridiculous how well he's playing right now. He's playing out of his mind, um, and he's doing the impossible of playing like a superstar despite being 39 years old, which is unheard of. Um, right now, he's averaging about 25 points, 8 rebounds, and 7 assists per game on 64.6% true shooting. Those numbers are crazy. They they are phenomenal. Those are great numbers. Um, and those would be great numbers for like any player, much less someone who is almost forty years old. Like that that level of productivity is crazy for his age. Um, he's shooting really well around the basket and from three point range. Um, he's his scoring efficiency honestly has been the best it's been in years. Like. He is really taking a step forward in terms of his scoring efficiency. Um, he's scoring really well around the rim, which that's usually something you see players struggle with as they age, but for LeBron, that just hasn't been the case. Um, he's having a really good season in that area in terms of you know finishing around the rim and shooting from behind the arc. His three-point percentage, I believe, is the best it's been since 2013 when he was with the Heat, so he's shooting the ball really well from the perimeter. Um, he's still a strong passer. His assist rate right now is in the 30s. I don't think he's as good of, as a passer as he was, you know, a few years ago when his assist rate was in the 40s. But still, he's a really good passer and, like, one of the better passers in the league. Not quite an elite passer, but still, like, a very strong passer, um, which is great. And because he's such a good passer and such a good shooter um, and, and a good scorer in general, like, he's one of the better offensive players in the league this season, um, which is great. Like, that's awesome. Um, now, what I've been most impressed by with him is his defense. His defense has been good, like, legitimately good. Not great or anything, but he's actually trying on defense. He's playing really well um, off the ball, playing team defense. It's been good. Like, his defensive estimated plus-minus, his DEPM of 1.8 is in the 94th percentile. That's really good, and that's another another thing that you see that you see players struggle with as they age. Usually, as players get older, their their um, the amount of effort they put in on defense tends to slow down a bit and get worse. But for LeBron, it's only gotten better, which is great to see. Now, I don't know if he's going to be able to keep this up the whole year, but for now, his defense is pretty good, and I think. That, along with uh, the way Anthony Davis is playing, is why the Lakers have one of the better defenses in the league at the moment. Um, so yeah, like he's been awesome defensively. He's been great all around. Um, his scoring prowess is fantastic. He's been one of the stronger scorers in the league this season. Um, and honestly, this is one of his strongest scoring seasons in a long time. Um, he's just, he's taken his game to another level. Um, and he's playing the best he's played Honestly, since he was in Cleveland, which is really hard to believe because there have been times where he's been really good with the Lakers, um, but he has just, he's reached another level, which is hard to believe considering his age, but that's what's happening, and it's why, and it's why I think he's taking down father time. Um, earlier this week, I looked at some impact metrics. Uh, I th- I've talked about these metrics before on the podcast, um, EPM, estimated plus minus, and BPM, Box plus minus, if you're not familiar with these metrics, these metrics attempt to estimate how many points a player is worth or contributes to their teams uh, per 100 possessions, and it looks at their offense and their defense. Um, I want to start by looking at, you know, where his EPM ranks 
um, for him. Uh, his EPM this season is the best it's been since 2020. That's the year that the Lakers won the championship. Um, and then his BPM, his box plus minus, is the best it's been since 2015. Um, and technically, it's pretty similar to where it was in 2017. Um, in 2015, that's the year the Cavs went to the championship. They lost in the finals to the Warriors, um, but that was mainly because of Kyrie um, and Kevin Love missing the, uh, the finals due to injury. And then in 2017, they faced like one of the greatest teams of all time in the Cavs lost in the finals uh, to the Warriors. Um, but yeah, like I mentioned, like he, this is the best he's played in years, and the advanced metrics make that abundantly clear. Like LeBron James is playing at a super high level, even for his standards, which are already pretty ridiculous. Um, I also looked at what, where his BPM ranks among players all time, 39 years old or older. Um, right now his BPM is around 8.8, .8, which is like strong MVP level. Um, his BPM of 8.8, .8, it would be the best box plus minus ever for a player, um, 39 years old or older. Um, and it's higher than second place, which is 2001 John Stockton, by around three and a half points, which is crazy. Another thing I wanted to talk about was the GOAT conversation a little bit. I don't love talking about the GOAT combo. Like, it's, it's been played out way too much. People talk about it way too often. Um, but this is like another, another like addition to his GOAT case. The fact that he's playing so well. Um, I think that's one of the most impressive parts of LeBron James' career or his resume, um, as, you, as you may say, is the fact that his longevity has been so impressive. He's been playing at such a high level for such a long time, um, and if he continues to play at this level for much longer, I think it's going to be inarguable that he is the greatest player to ever play. And I am someone that thinks that he may already be the GOAT. And I, I am not even a LeBron fan. I'm more, I, I am someone that has thought for a long time that Michael Jordan is the GOAT. And I think that, that Michael Jordan still has a case. In my opinion, it's a 1A, 1B conversation when you talk about who's the greatest basketball player of all time. In my opinion, it's either Michael Jordan or LeBron James. Um, but man, LeBron James has put together a freaking awesome case to be the GOAT, and he might be it. He might be the greatest player we've ever seen. Like, he's been playing at such a high level for such a long time, and there aren't a lot of blemishes on his resume. Of course, you can bring up, you know, the 2011 uh, finals when he really struggled against the Mavericks, but other than that, he's been really good. He continues to play at a high level. His longevity is just ridiculous. He's got, like, GOAT-level longevity. He's just an awesome player in general. We've seen him, you know, as he ages, we've seen him develop as a shooter, which is really impressive. Um, there have been times throughout his career when he's been elite as a defender. Um, he's always been pretty good as a finisher. He's just a great player, and he continues to play at a superstar level well into his 30s, which is crazy. I, I had to talk about LeBron James. He's having a phenomenal season. We'll see if he can keep this up throughout the season. If he can, he will be an MVP candidate and potentially an MVP finalist. Um, I don't think he's the MVP 
quite yet. There are some other players that are playing really well right now, like uh, Nikola Jokic, Shane Kilgis Alexander, and Joel Embiid. But LeBron James, he's playing phenomenally. He's been awesome this year. And he's having one of the best seasons we've ever seen from a, from a player who is almost 40 years old. So, shout out to him. He's been awesome. And it's been a privilege to watch him play. Well, that's all I have for today's episode of the podcast. We talked about a lot here. I hope you all enjoyed it. I know I did. Um, let me know your thoughts in the comments if you're watching on YouTube. Leave a review if you're listening on Spotify. And if you want to hit me up on social media, you can. Uh, my Twitter and my Instagram handle are the Ryan McCrary. That's the R-Y-A-N-M-C-C-R-A-R-Y. You can hit me up on social media and I will respond. But yeah, that's, what, that's all we have for today's episode. Hope you all enjoyed it and I will see you all next time. Peace. <laughs>